Today on Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, we have with us Amanda Vandras, who is a molecular biologist, which is pretty hardcore. <laughs> um, I initially thought she was a geneticist, but have since corrected myself, thank God. But you do work a lot with genetics. Um, you've done some really interesting things with grapes and wine and things of this nature in particular, which I would love to get into. But first, let's hear a little bit about Amanda herself. Um, you have a pretty strong background, Cornell, Oregon State, PhD, et cetera. Hit me, what, what, what's the background look like? So when I was an undergraduate student at Cornell, I became obsessed with grapes. I love everything about them. I love the beauty of where they're grown. I love the, I love smells. So like aroma of not just wine, but also perfumes and, and beer. And I can nerd out on smells like all day. Um, my first mentor was actually a chemist, not a biologist. And I had taken his class on wine chemistry and composition because I was a, I was enthusiastic about like organic chemistry. I was just like, oh, wine, that's cool. Like, what's this about? So I took his class, became enamored with the subject. And, um, I asked if I could be his minion, like in your lab, like I'll wash dishes, like, please, can I get involved in research? Also, if you're an undergraduate student at a university that does research, like that's a great way to figure out, do I want to be a scientist? What do I want to do is just kind of like connect with a subject, get involved in research in a subject that you're interested in. But he was like, I'll do you one better. Like there's money available that you can apply for. You can write a grant, get money as an undergraduate student to do your own research project. So he helped me, you know, apply for the grant. I got money as an undergrad, which is not super common, but was great because um, I could do my own research freely as an undergrad and I got my own little lab space. And that's that's how I became sure, you know, I want to be a scientist. I'd always kind of wanted to be, but now that I I had put myself in that environment, I was certain like, this is what I, this is what I should do. Mm -hmm. um, and if you want to be a scientist, much of the time you have to have a PhD. So I was like, uh, where should I get my PhD? And he recommended, so he recommended like find a project that you're really interested in. Um, and he also encouraged me to go to this one lab in or at Oregon State. So that's, so that's why I moved to Oregon. It's also gorgeous. And it's also gorgeous. So like that's the other piece of, you know, working in grape is that, you know, every summer and fall you're, working mostly just like designing you're designing your experiments you're you know sampling and tying strings on individual berries uh for you know to collect them later it's the most beautiful it's the most beautiful place to work i've worked i've had a variety of jobs growing up but like nothing i've never worked anywhere else that like regularly fills me with awe and I, that's kind of why I stuck in grapes for about a decade. And then after my PhD, I went to UC Davis. So I, I was, I had been presenting, my, if you're a grad student, you make posters and you present them at conferences and then you stand by the poster and people walk by. And if they're interested, you tell them, you try and give them like a, a few sentences. This is what I do. And if they're interested, they talk longer. Anyway, so I met my, what, who would be my postdoc advisor at a conference. He saw my poster and was like, when you finish your PhD, you will come work for me. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and Aggressive, I like yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was great. And then every once in a while, he'd like email me like, are you done yet? You know, that kind of deal. And, but so I went to go 
worked for him at UC Davis and I worked for him for five years. I'm sure we'll talk about um, some of the work I did there. Yeah. Um, and UC Davis is like Grapetopia to do grape research. Um, there, I worked at the Robert Mondavi Institute there. The the labs so are these beautiful glass buildings and in the courtyard there's olive trees and pomegranate bushes. Are they bushes? I don't know. Yeah. Pomegranate plants. Um, there's this like beautiful garden and you just get to see that every day. And then there's a dedicated experimental vineyard close by for specifically for studying um, my virus of interest, uh, grape, grape leaf roll virus, grapevine mm -hmm. leaf roll virus. So that's kind of my background. And then you realize, uh, oh crap, I know a lot about grapes. Like I can't be a postdoc forever. What am I going to do? I don't want to be an academic. I was started looking for a job and I got recruited by UNC Comprehensive Cancer Center. So I like really switched gears and I became a bioinformatician at the UNC Lineberger Cancer Center. And I, I oh. did that for about a year. And now I'm like totally out of academia and I'm working at a startup. Nice. A, a bunch of different stuff I want to unpack. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I mean, no, that's great. That's the full That's amazing. There's a bunch lineage. of different stuff I want to unpack because wow, you've had you've had a pretty great career. Thank you. Um couple of different things inside of there. First of all, just a comment. Uh, yeah, Mondavi, specifically their their cabs, like a nice 97 reserve. Oh, my word. Is that Have you been unbelievable? To I've been to, yes. So I, I lived in Northern California for a while. I've been all over Napa, uh, the Camus, Camus wineries, the Silver Oak. That's probably my favorite. I've been to Opus. I've been to uh, Mondavi. I've been to a few, few different spots. But yeah, amazing that they're doing that. And um, what a great treat in Oregon to have done that. First thing I want to unpack, though, is... Um, if one wanted to get into molecular biology, how, how would one do that? And, and for that matter, why? Because, um, not to draw the question out, but it seems like almost everything, like literally almost everything that's alive is effectively downstream mm -hmm. of molecular biology, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's the root of, yeah. of, of everything. So, so why was that so... Interesting for you. That's such a great subject, and not a lot of people necessarily even know, like n maybe not even what you do or like how you get into that. So, can we chat about that for a sec? Sure. Um, so, yeah, the my primary interest or my the the bottom level of my interests are genome structure, function, and organization most of the time as it relates to grapes, but then most recently as it relates to cancer. And if you're interested in this kind of thing, you know, if you're a young student, that's you, that's usually the, that's, I would guess that's the path of least resistance. If you're interested in molecular biology, like find a, a lab or, or a professor whose work you're interested in, like on any university page, you can click through like professors mm -hmm what they do and just be like, can I, and I was a, prior to grape, I actually also worked a little bit in a tomato lab. Mm -hmm. um, and I was kind of a grunt, you know? So just like say, I'm interested in this, get your foot in the door. There will probably be a lot of dishwashing, but you'll learn a lot of useful skills that you can then parlay into doing your own research and uh, competently. Mm -hmm. If you're not a student though, like if you're, if you're a hobbyist, let's say, and you just want to get into this, um, I know there is a community of biohackers in Austin, where we are now. Um, one of them is who 
is like super cool and actually runs a company to facilitate bio, DIY biohacking kind of stuff. Um, his name is Joe Zaner. And right. Joe Zaner runs a company called The Odin. And uh, The Odin sells basically like kits for doing molecular biology in your garage, things like that. So if oh. you want to like fool around with molecular biology, like that's another way to do that. And I think it's the-odin.com, correct? Something of this oh, nature. I'm sorry, I don't know. I think it is. Um, if it's not, it's it's Joe Zayner, J-O, and then Z-A-Y-N-E-R. I think that's yep. correct. Yep. Um, I visited that site. It was pr pretty interesting stuff. So that's the how. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now I want to go into the more of the why. Why does one, someone, why, why does someone know that they're interested in this in the first place? Like are there specific uh. signals? You're just like, oh, I'm really interested in like super tiny things. Oh, well, okay. So the grape stuff I think is pretty obvious. Like mm. even if you're not a molecular biologist, I think the average person can understand like why you would appreciate the beauty of vineyards and wine and like its connection to human history and all of this stuff. Um, that's the easy thing. And then maybe it's obvious, maybe it's not obvious. Um, I think humans in general are obsessed with things that they can't see. And you can't see things at the with the naked eye, molecular level. So I kind of, that's my, how do I say this? That interest in me manifests as like, oh, I want to, I want to be a molecular biologist. Like, I want to understand that which is unseeable. Like, what's going on behind the scenes? Like, what makes me? What differenti differentiates you from me? I think right. that's We've really got cool. these like clumps of cells mm -hmm, that are mm -hmm. that are you know you've got your clump of cells over here. I got my clump of cells mm -hmm. over here, and you're going cool. I get that. I'm also interested in the there's kind of universals. So okay. like there is a obviously there's like things that differentiate us from elephants and things like that. But the the underlying building blocks of life. Are universal and that is really really cool so you you have this dna it's still dna like in the elephant mm -hmm. and in me it's just different it's that and ctga I, or whatever I, yeah atcg atcg sorry and i just think that is so cool that you have these these building blocks of life and if you assemble them in this particular way you get a and if you assemble them in this particular way you get a and then understand the relationship between that particular sequences and certain functions. So I mentioned before, you know, my first toe into grape world was like, oh, I'm interested in chemistry, actually, and aroma. Well, there's a molecular biological gen genetic basis for aroma. So that I, I'm interested in the connection between the what's at the bottom, like mm. the bottom layer, biologically speaking, um, and the output things that I enjoy or can affect my life. Yeah, that's big. No, seriously, that's that's big. I I, I definitely appreciate that because I had something reasonably similar in the computer world where I was just like, I don't I, I don't want to run programs. I want to program. Like I want to build yeah. things that people use and then I want to understand, wait, how does this program translate into machine code and then how does that translate effectively into electrical engineering and the chip and so on and so forth. So I can I can definitely Definitely appreciate where you were coming from. I like that. Um, oh, thank you. So if I break it all the way down and correct me here, but like it just seems like it's more of like 
you have an intense curiosity about life. Yes. Yeah, that's a much better way of putting it, actually. It's more succinct. Well, um, so, I mean, but but your, but yeah. your way was, was, was much more much more descriptive. I have a, maybe a, it's, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I'm not going to be able to put it better than that. Excellent. Well, okay, so clearly now, and again, I'm, I'm going to go right back to the beginning statement because there was a lot to unpack. There was wine, there was cancer, and then there's there's the <laughs> there's your startup. There's mm-hmm. a lot in there. Um how about how about we hit up wine first? All right. So this is a good thing. I'm a big fan. Uh, I'm a I'm a, re- I'm a red guy. Although I do some enjoy some champagnes. Um, champagne is my sauce. Yeah, I love champagnes. But basically, when we talk about uh, molecular biology, at least from you know my my layman's understanding, it's a grape is is a grape, and we can kind of all agree to you know for, for some definition of this is a grape. You can squish it and eat it. Right. But there are very different grapes, like mm-hmm. wildly different grapes. And sometimes grapes are so close together. I mean, we, we sort of spoke a little bit offline about this, but sometimes grapes are so close together that it's like, actually, that's the same grape. It just has a weird genetic variation. Um, can we talk through a little bit of that? I can't. What, what was it? Was it Pinot? I can't remember. Yeah. So that's right. So there are different cultivars. There are also clones that happen to have different names. So for example, Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, and Pinot Meunier are all clones of one another. No, one another. That is that they have somatic mutation, so there's no sex going on, so the variability between them is not caused by mating, but there are mutations that just occur over time um, that account for consequential differences between them. So Pinot Noir is red, Pinot Gris is gray, Pinot Blanc is white. Um, so that's just somatic variation. Where And then between different grape varieties, so for example, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon mm-hmm. is the- my, o- my favorite. Yes, your favorite, <laughs> is the offspring of Sauvignon Blanc and uh, Cabernet Franc. I hope I said that right. Um, and this is just like, just brief little aside. What's really cool about- grape is that when you actually look at the genome, there's a lot of what's called structural variation. So you think most of the time of a diploid organism, that is for every gene, you get one copy from mom and one copy from dad. Okay. In grape, the crosses are relatively distant, which means that in some cases you only get one copy from one of the parents. So you get what's called hemizygosity um, and just the when as a someone who studies grape as a consequence, mm-hmm. you can't use just like one it well, people there's one reference grape genome that's been used for most of the studies done, but there's a lot of interest in sequencing and assembling a lot of different grape mm-hmm. genomes so that you can fully represent all of the variable gene content that can occur between different cultivars. You you mentioned two different words there, and I need I need some help here. You mentioned I think structural and somatic. Yeah. What's what's the difference between those two? Oh, so a structural variation is just um, let's an example would be let's say you have a reference genome, so like some representative sequence. Yes, you can have individual positions in the genome that are different, called SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms. You can have indels, and these are small insertions or deletions. Let's say under a hundred base pairs or 100 ATCs or Gs, mm-hmm. no more than that. So either an insertion that size or a removal that size. Um, you can also have, so structural variations can be 
really big inversions where relative to the reference, the sample you're looking at, an entire region has been turned around. You have duplications, uh, large deletions. Um, what's another one? Um, yeah, in large insertions, large deletions, large inversions. Mm-hmm. You can also have transpositions. So this sequence is over here in the reference. Oh, and it moved way over here in this other, uh, in your sample of interest. Does, does that matter? I'm asking because does that matter in DNA? Because is it <laughs> is it read uh, in a particular fashion, like the order matters? Oh, um, yes. Asterisk. So if you're, if you're talking about does structural variation matter? Yes. Does the order matter? It can. So for example, with some really large insertions or deletions, you could be inserting or deleting gene-containing blocks. And if that gene plays some role in the characteristic of a particular wine or something like that, that the presence or absence of that gene could be consequential. Hmm. Um, in terms of order, so I might deviate slightly from the topic of structural variation. So just why, wh- how, why does order matter? So if you look at a gene in the genome, it is made of, well, let's see. Um, I don't know if I can like directly talk about this in terms of structural variation, but let, let me try. So if you can move around the entirety of the gene plus the stuff that regulates it, maybe it wouldn't be consequential, but I'm not certain. Okay. So for ex- so genes don't just genes don't just turn on and off by themselves. Mm-hmm. Adjacent to them, they have things called promoter elements. And promoter elements are just additional DNA sequence that the that for example, these proteins called transcription factors can bind to them, and that can regulate whether the gene is on or off. So if, for example, there was some reason that there was some like relocation of something somewhere else and it segregated it, segregated the gene from its regulatory chunks. Right. Then you probably couldn't turn it on or off necessarily. Well, I don't, I don't know if that's like a dominant, I don't know how often that actually occurs. Okay. Well, that's all right. We're nerding it up over here (laughs) for a sec. No, that's a good question. But I do want to come back to, to, to the original piece, which was, which was Mm -hmm. wine. Mm -hmm. You've done some pretty incredible stuff with Zinfandel as Mm -hmm. in, I think you know this topic. Oh, Zinfandel. Yeah. Extremely well. Hit me with some Zinfandel stuff. Okay. What's going on with this? All right. So Zinfandel there is a very enthusiastic group of people who like are really, really into Zinfandel. Mm-hmm. And um, they, among other things, they were, these people are interested in, um, does my Zinfandel clone have particularly interesting characteristics? Just like Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris and Pinot Noir have unique characteristics, even though they're all Pinot. So they have done things like um, they have, partially funded some of my work in the past, mm-hmm. the Zinfandel advocates and producers, and um, done things, and I don't know if it's the same group, but they've done things like Zinfandel safaris to Croatia to find out like who are the, or 
what grapes are the parents of Zinfandel, they have not been discovered, although cousins of Zinfandel have been discovered. Um, but Zinfandel is thought to have come from Croatia and then was brought to Italy by Benedictine monks. And in Croatia, it's... Sounds about right. <laughs> in, Sounds about right. <laughs> in Croatia, um, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, but Zinfandel is not called Zinfandel. Zinfandel is called um, Krojenak Kastelanski and okay. also Pribidrog, I think. Is Pribidrog also? Yeah. And then in Italy, it's called Primitivo. And in uh, the United States, it's called Zinfandel. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't always obvious, like, how is it? For a long time, Zinfandel was the most produced grape in California. And there was some, like, curiosity of, like, how it got there. And there's some drama related to that. And I can't remember. There was some guy who was, like, credited with it. And it turned out that's not true. And actually, the most likely story is that Zinfandel came to California from New York, actually. Really? And there was an architect from my hometown. Um, what was his name? There's an architect from my hometown in Newburgh, New York, who is also an avid botanist. And one of the pieces of evidence that support that Zinfandel came to California from New York was this, like, botanical, like, hort or horticultural journal article that he had written, um, Andrew Jackson Downing. That's okay. the name of the that's the name of the architect, and um, yeah. So th there's a cool kind of story and intrigue regarding the the migration and like the import of Zinfandel to California. Okay, but here's the thing. So the, we did this project. We uh, we sequenced 16 different Zinfandel clones from around the world. So California, Italy, and Croatia. And we wanted to see like do they actually vary in potentially functionally consequential ways so that the people who have these interesting clones of Zinfandel, they can say, oh, I have this like superior clone of Zinfandel. And then even, and then if you're planting a Zinfandel vineyard, you can, if there are differences between the clones, make more informed choices about what you plant. So what would, what would, what would a superior version of Zinfandel be? Like what, what makes something superior uh, in that uh, context? The knee-jerk answer is beauty is in the the eye of the beholder, um, and that seems like a diplomatic. Some, <laughs> some to some extent, you know, people have different tastes in wine and things like that. But um, here, I'll give a uh, less obvious answer, which is that I believe my part of my great work is the purpose is to facilitate the creative expression of a winemaker. So whatever their creative objectives are. Like, let's say they're involved in planting a vineyard. If you know this clone does, is more like this and this clone is more like this and this clone is more like this, whatever you want, whatever you envision as your end product, um, you can make planting decisions based on that purpose. Um, but when you do grape research, there is a lot of emphasis on what are called um, quality-associated metabolites. So things like anthocyanins, which are responsible for the pigment in wine. Like when you swirl the wine and you look up at it, mm -hmm. like, oh, like it's red, but is it more brick red? Is it more ruby red? Sure. Is it more burgundy? Like what uh, anthocyanins in the wine, that's what they're doing. Or uh, tannins, uh, what kind of tannin profile do you prefer? Or um, in whites, I think there are what are called terpenes. So like the case kind of pretty floral smelling aromas. So, yeah. Okay. So it really is in the, you weren't joking. It was in the eye of the beholder and it could be, they, they want a particular color. They want 
more fruity. They want more earthy. They want more, you know, these these various things is what yeah. they're sort of considering to be a superior Zimf. Yeah, winemakers are very thoughtful people. They are generally not like, you know, just like mashing some grapes and letting it rip. Like they have, mm. many of them that I've interacted with, they have a, a goal of like what they're us trying to create. And part of that is knowing very well like what you can expect from the grapes that you've got to work with. We chatted a little bit offline, but one of the fun facts that we were kind of looking at is that sommelier exam. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it turns out something like only 296 people ever mm-hmm. have passed that exam. I think that's the right number. I think it's 296 since like it was first invented in the 1960s, which means it's it's li- like it's literally harder, harder than mm-hmm. becoming a SEAL like twice over, like a Navy SEAL <laughs> twice over, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. That's an unbelievable test. Um, that said, you were talking about um, sequencing things for uh, for Zinfandel, among other things, mm-hmm. which kind of leads into the startup. Okay. So yeah, yeah. yeah. You've you, speaking of yeah, I mean speaking of sequences, you're, you're I don't know what your official title is there, head of something or other. Um. Head of awesomeness. I'll, I'm going to say that head of awesomeness. <laughs> yeah. And you're working with. I was going to try and come up with like a clever, clever title, but I was senior vice president quick. of you know making I'm cool te- wines. I'm technically the head of science at Generate. Right, and you're working with Taylor and Razib. Razib mm-hmm. was also on this podcast, uh, geneticist Razib Khan, and um, you guys are working on effectively like a, a genomic focused data store. Yes, and there's other cool stuff about it too. Yeah, but um. So doing genomics is not trivial. It's not easy to do on your average laptop. Um, data sets are really big. And if you're working for a comp- large, you know, company or an institution that wants to do genomics in an ongoing way, you know, over time, you're generating more and more over time mm-hmm. and you want to be able to make use of all that information. So we make the storage easier, the processing easier. If one of our, com- one of our customers, they have customers and they need to deliver analyses um, to their own customers, we make that sharing component easier. Um, and one thing we're really excited about doing in the long term um, is facilitating better contextualization, an understanding of your results. And part of that has to do with like the founder. So Taylor, you've met Taylor. Mm-hmm. She, her and the founder's vision is that our company should have some hand in making precision medicine a reality and getting your, everybody, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening have had their genome sequenced and now you have all of this information, like what does it actually mean? Um, so, and as a scientist, okay, I generate sequencing. I like did this analytical process and now I have this result. The next step that is very challenging, it's the most fun part, but is the most challenging is the, understanding the story and the data. So that is that is the long-term vision for the company, not just the like those those like key building block elements, but the stuff that makes scientists excited about being scientists, we'd like to have a hand in doing that. Right. And again, science being the search for truth, effectively what you're looking for is what would be true for this individual person. Mm-hmm. Again, sort of a dream state. What would be true for this individual person if we gave them X molecule, in other words, mm-hmm. X drug or X medicine, et cetera? Um, and I, I have to agree. I mean, that would be I, I would I think that would be a dream state for me as well. Um, for most people around the world, 
personalized medicine would be incredible. We're not there, but it seems like you guys are trying to push us there. That's great. Yeah. It's exciting stuff. And that piece, you know, the bigger vision and then like thinking about, okay, what are we actually going to do to like get closer to that thing? Like Mm -hmm. that's uh, among other things, the most is one of the, it's one of the reasons I joined the company, um, in the first place, other than, other than like, you've met Razib and Taylor and I don't know if you've met Shantanu, but like the founders are great. Um, great, smart, competent, able. So I'm just like, I'm happy to be Ringo, you know, like not an original Beatle, but happy to be the. That's fair. I'm going to sidetrack for a half second. Mm -hmm. Ringo was the only professional musician in the Beatles. You could literally ask anybody about this. I, I, I looked all this stuff up. Ringo was the only one who got almost everything done on the first take. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, they all eventually became amazing musicians, but Ringo was actually a pro before. That's cool. It's actually pretty sweet. So I know Ringo's the overlooked Beatle, but it's like, no, I mean, that he He's was- He's not overlooked. He's he my was, favorite. He was a pro. <laughs> He's my mom's favorite. He's always been, okay, cool. Um, but besides that- Besides Ringo, back um, to science. Actually, um, I, I, <laughs> more back to you because um, I'm curious, like they, it seems like a really amazing vision. Is there something in particular that sort of attracted you? Because you were working at, and I do want to talk about cancer at UNC, but that's For what sure. you were kind of doing previous. Is there a reason you wanted to make the move to this particular firm outside of, you know, the, the cult of personality? Oh, no, I would. <laughs> okay. So as I disclaim, I am proud of the work I have done mm-hmm. and I admire the people I have worked for. I have known for a long time. I do not want to be an academic. Okay. And actually, while I was interviewing at UNC, I had been interviewing at uh companies, Mm. for example. Um, I have this, how do I say this? I have a almost like whole, like kind of reverence for entrepreneurs and for commerce that I don't always observe. I don't observe enough in academia. And I also have Whenever I have an existential crisis when I was an academic, I'd be like, oh, I should just like quit my job and be a winemaker. I'd love to do that. And that comes from like crave. I love being a scientist, but I kind of crave the satisfaction I envision you get when you can say like I made this Mm -hmm. or, you know, I worked with this group that I, you know, adore to make this thing and I can hold it in my hand and it has real value to other people that is measurable. I crave that thing. I mean, that's a very real thing. I know mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of bricklayers out there who literally have the exact – people are always like, well, it's just a bricklayer. And it's like, no, a lot of those people are some of the happiest people in the world. Mm-hmm. They can literally point at the end of almost every day and be like, I built that. I made that. It's real. It's measurable. It's valuable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a perfect way of putting it. Um, I also have some reverence for some academia folks, though. I mean, some yeah. some pretty amazing stuff has come out of academia well, there's no shame in saying you're a capitalist, too. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yes, I'm not I'm... saying you're doing it for the money. I'm just saying, you know, making – making something real and and getting paid for it and having market value. Nothing wrong with that. That's great. Um, Let's do go into the cancer piece at UNC Mm -hmm. because you did some pretty amazing work there. Thank you. I think you were working pretty heavily with melanoma, if I recall Mm -hmm. correctly. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about that. All right. So I was working with this group who has this, I think the project's been going for like 10 years, uh, and they study the well. The project I was working on was taking stage two and three melanoma, uh, 
patient samples, and those samples have a very wide prognosis, I think is the right word. Like some of them are have better outcomes than others. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of this project was to determine whether you could use genomic information to better predict the risk for those kind of ambiguous like uh, samples. If you can do that, if you can better, if you, if, if methylation information or genomic information has prognostic value, then when you go to your doctor, they can better push you in one direction treatment wise or not. Um, so you can better say like, this is dangerous, go get treatment, or this is not dangerous. Have a nice day. You know, um, you said a word there, you know what I'm going to ask methylation. This isn't methamphetamine. This is definitely not okay. And so this is something else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, methyl marks or methylation, it's it's often talked about in terms of epigenetics. So changes to DNA that do not change the sequence. Which is fine. But how do do, I want to give this in the context of what you're just talking about, uh, the, the cancer context? Right. So this group that I worked with, yeah, so this is where I was going with this. This group that I worked with had previously published a paper about what's called the SIMP phenotype or the CPG island hypermethylated, no, CPG island methylated, hypermethylated phenotype, which means that in some, that some samples at the same stage of melanoma have vast, have a, this like global hypermethylation. And this is riskier. They have this group has poorer outcomes, and so CPG islands are places in the genome where there's like CG, lots of CGs, and they are methylated. And we don't. I off the top of my head, I don't. Well, in general, it's thought that like methylation, the effect of methylation is that it reduces gene expression. It also has a beneficial effect in that it keeps jumping genes from jumping around. But back to this group, um, what we did is we measured global methylation in melanoma stage two and three melanoma samples, and then looked to see like the and we saw that these SIMP samples, these very globally highly methylated um, melanoma samples, have poorer poor outcomes. The, the consequence of this is that there will be a day when you can go into your dermatologist and you when you get your melanoma checked, there will also be an assay attached to that that's measuring the methylation level in the sample. And if the methylation level is this kind of intermediate or high level, mm-hmm. you're more you're at much higher risks. And so you will make different decisions. That's the, the value of the project. Well, that's interesting. OK, so in, in the methylation when we're talking about that, and again, this mm-hmm. that was perfect context for, for, okay, for cool. the cancer. But when we're talking about methylation, because I kind of cut you off, I didn't mean no, no, to. No, no, I I'm just sorry. really wanted to understand the cancer thing. Um, but when we're talking about methylation in general, you said that this this methylation or hypermethylation, it reduces genome expression. Or sorry, not genome, but gene expression. Mm-hmm. And then I guess there would be hypomethylation, which is like not enough mm-hmm. to where genes can like jump around and do crazy stuff, something mm-hmm. of this nature. Is that is that is that a fair characterization? Yeah, so not all hi- hypermethylation is bad. Not all hypomethylation is good. It's context specific. So right. under certain contexts, uh, you're going to observe a particular pattern of methylation. So a context in which 
hypermethylation is really good is it keeping transposable elements in the genome silent. When they jump around, you, they can cause disease. Um, but in a negative context, in these melanoma samples, like there's something about that that puts the patient in a higher risk group that is more more likely to die with, within five years of diagnosis. Um, methylation is also relevant in terms of so some other projects that I worked on were to evaluate you know does dr does drug treatment affect methylation pattern um, and then. Under, yeah, under certain disease states, you can have changes in methylation during development. So methylation is not necessarily set in stone. Mm -hmm. It's flexible or can be flexible during development. Um, so, yeah. Well, so that's an amazing study. So the question has to be asked, of course, are molecular biologists the brains behind the medicine? Oh, oh. Uh just a piece. We're a piece. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of hands in making the soup. Um, oh, and crap, what I was going to say. Oh, I forgot. It must not have been important. Does that but it takes chemists, it takes physicians. So a lot of, most of the people I worked with, you know, I, they were physicians like and researchers. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense. It seems like you and chemists would be like joined at the hip. Yeah. Almost, right? Yeah, I love chemists and, or I love chemistry. And um, yeah, my first mentor was a chemist. I mentioned is a brilliant chemist, um, and yeah, you just you know you only have one life to live, so pick. You know, <laughs> um, two things jump into my head when we say chemistry. One of them is that the um, and I would love to have someone on like this, but um, when when chemistry started entering sort of the the gastronomical world, mm -hmm. which I think was was wasn't that long ago. I think it started in the '60s, but it really ramped up very heavily in the '80s and '90s. There was just sort of this explosion of crazy things you could do. like. No one ever heard of like deconstructed foods and all these mm -hmm. like crazy things that people do on food the Food Channel and like um, you know that that like a little bit of foam or whatever. And you're like, <laughs> wow, why does that taste like you know mm -hmm. a, you know a, a, a melange of crazy stuff? Um, and chemists really entered that field. And of course, um, that's an amazing thing. But of course, with a little bit of, you know, pop culture brain, unfortunately, in my head, obviously the next thing that comes up with chemistry, and maybe it's because you said methylation, is obviously breaking bad. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't right? know anything about that. <laughs> um, well, it was it was a good show. I'll put it that yeah, way. Yeah, really yeah. liked that show. Um, regardless, um, so yeah, okay. So so it seems like you and chemists are kind of joined at the hip when it comes to this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um with the cancer research at UNC, like, I know you're not an MD or anything, but do you see a state in the future? Let's, I mean, pick pick a time frame, five years, 20 years, 50 years. Do you see a state where we can effectively identify, like, well, I got your whole genome mapped, so I know I can, mm -hmm, I can mm -hmm. effectively guess what a damaged cell looks like or with a high probability and then either eliminate that cell or maybe repair it. I, I don't, you know, I don't know enough about what I'm saying to really. No, it's okay. I think ask. I know what you're getting at, yeah. which is like, like can, can we, we correct disease? Effectively. Kind of yeah. Right. I mean, cancer in particular is just, it's your own body. It's yeah. damaged cells. Well, if I've got a sample of your regular cells, I mean, I don't mind, I wouldn't mind getting like, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, needle pulls from various places in my body. If they're like, yeah, okay, we have a whole bunch of cells. All of them are functioning. If you ever get cancer, we can detect it effectively instantaneously because mm -hmm. it's a pattern matcher and then we can like search and destroy those that would be amazing yeah so level one i but in my brain level one of like i have my genome sequenced i know 
for which diseases I am at relatively higher risk. And so I can go to my doctor and say, I'd like to check for this maybe more frequently than would otherwise be called for. Or maybe I would start getting screened for things younger than I would um, because, they, you know, you always hear, you know, you catch things early, the better the better the outcomes, the earlier you catch yeah. this. So there's that piece. And then there's the piece of like, well, can I, you know, edit out the problem? And that I think is not too far away. Um, I don't do, I don't, I don't really know the mechanics of how CRISPR works, but that is what people are talking about. Yeah. And it seems most likely that simple d- diseases caused by simple mutations like one change in one gene that seems like the lowest hanging fruit nice. um <laughs> and think but a lot of a lot of mm, disease associations you know um these hundred variations are associated with higher risk for this disease though that's not necess- that's not necessarily a causal link so it's not necessarily true that this these variations are all causing this um but even if that were true that would be more challenging to to build um, okay but could you see a path doable. for that in like 50 years yeah anything is possible with the mind Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I tend to agree. All right. Well, let's go with something slightly happier. Yeah. Um, But I do have a little bit of a moral conundrum for you. So you're a molecular biologist. Mm -hmm. Would you have a problem? Have you you seen Star Trek, any of the Star Treks or anything like that? You know, they've got replicators. I... I've watched a little bit of Star Trek, but I'm not like a Trekkie. I'm I would lose badly at Star Trek trivia. That's fair. So they've got rep- replicators. Replicators effectively and theoretically, this is possible. You would just need like you know several atomic bombs worth of power. But what they basically do is they recombined molecules straight out of the air into like an apple mm-hmm. or a big fat tomato or something <laughs> like that. My question is, um, that tomato had no had no genesis. It was literally put together um, by high tech. And obviously Star Trek is in the you know 24th or 5th century or whatever. And mm-hmm. I mean, this is, of course, hypothetical, but would you have an issue with that if basically it didn't really come from what we would consider today to be life? But afterwards, I mean, the seeds are intact and like you just have this big, giant, fat tomato. Would you be all right with that? First... Well, short answer, no, I have no problems with with very big fat tomatoes. Um, <laughs> I hope they're still flavorful. And I, you know, I, I, there are other characteristics besides the size of the tomato that I would care about. But no, I have no problem with a big fat tomato. And I would also say, like, all the other tomatoes are still low-tech tomatoes. Like, there's, you're walking through, you know, the a forest, you're not going to find juicy tomatoes on the vine that you see at Whole Foods, you know. So I see the big, fat, juicy tomato um, of today, mm-hmm. really, and tomorrow. Like, this is just like, we're, we have better tools to do things that we've already been doing for a yeah, really long time. and that's that's effectively where I was going, right? Star mm-hmm. Trek is sort of the, the, the end state where we literally mm-hmm. pull molecules out of the air and just create this. 
but it's more along the lines of like basically coming coming back to now, which is okay, you you, you know, you have a tomato, you pull some seeds out, you plant another tomato mm-hmm, plant, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Right? Sure. And we would consider that okay, that's you know all organic and everything's good to go. And I guess the question is, you know, what if what if we genetically modified it so you have this big fat tomato? Mm-hmm. I mean, is that a bad thing? No, I don't see a reason. And if anything, there's a lot of reasons to do that that include like organic farming is difficult, especially if you live in a place that has um, a lot of pest pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, genetic modification means likely more resistance to stress. So like drought, salinity, flood, things like that. Um, that's a good thing because, you know, being able to feed people is a good thing. There was this, you know, for a long time, people thought, oh, we're not going to be able to sustain this many people on the earth. It's genetic modification and access to markets that mean that we don't have mass starvation. That's a beautiful thing. Then aside from resistance to stress, that means you could also use less pesticides. So if you're concerned about if you if you love your like hippie tomato that has not been sprayed with anything, genetic modification increases the likelihood that maybe you use less pesticides or don't have to use them or you don't have to use as much fertilizer or water. If you're concerned with the preservation of natural resources, genetic modification is one way to reduce impact if that is your if that's what you value. This is a good solution for that. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people, just to be perfectly honest, I think people aren't really concerned with like, yeah, I mean, they're making it somewhat pesticide resistant. So like those are the good side effects, right? But mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, they're here molecular biologists and it, it sounds like you're playing God and whatnot. And mm-hmm. they're afraid that you make these other modifications where it's like, and I'm also going to like drop your IQ points and make you subservient. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. maybe that's all crazy BS, which is fair. But I think a lot of people are concerned with those types of things. Would you, I mean, how, how do we assuage those those people's concerns? I mean, I don't think you have mm-hmm. to. Like, I'll, I'll give a quick example. Mm-hmm. I don't think you have to in India when I think it was Norman Borlaug in the 70s came up with dwarf wheat. He won a Nobel Prize. Basically, it doesn't topple over in the sun. It's short, but it produces the same amount of wheat, um, which was pretty amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. that was one of the first, like, global type of deal, uh, uh, global GMO type of deals. We kind of backport that to the U.S. and now you've got, you know, whole sections of of grocery stores or even just entire grocery stores. It's like if it's not organic, we're not putting it in here um, type of deal. And then you have other grocery stores where it's like, no, we really do have like we've got all the regular stuff that people are used to. But we also have like organic sections, mm-hmm. sections and whatnot, which is great. Um, but, yeah, I mean, some people are genuinely afraid of like scientists mm-hmm. I don't want to say like yourself because that's rude, um, but like of scientists kind of playing God and being like, I'm part of this big master plan. And I don't know, you get into these crazy conspiracy theories mm-hmm, where. Mm-hmm. So let's say yeah. let's say you're afraid of but besides the technology itself, like you're afraid that. If we make the big juicy tomato, I'm not going to get my. The tomatoes that I like that are not the big juicy tomato, you know, whatever. My point of view is that markets tend to give people more choices, not fewer. And there are some, you know, asterisks here. But generally, like when I go, if you just walk outside today, 
go to a grocery store. There's lots of different kinds of tomatoes. There's lots of different kinds of apples. There's lots of different kinds of all kinds of things. And I don't see why it's necessarily true that, oh, we have a new, this technology that makes this new one thing and you're never going to have any other choices again. And so long as capitalism can exist, there will be, and provided there is a demand for non-big juicy tomatoes, I tend to think that they will persist. Which is, I mean, personally, I would tend to agree with you. But again, like you, 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 you definitely have people who are wary of various things when we start tampering with. Well, I, I, I think I don't know. Maybe that's a biased word. I don't. I, I come. I'm kind of on your side. I, I like to tamper with things. I think it's fun and interesting. And what can we do? And so on and so forth. But um, I mean, I, I would tend to agree. Usually, you don't see a lot of a lot of people where it's like, yeah, less choices in the market is a good thing. Who, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, like that whole thing. Have you ever heard of like choice? It was in the pop culture a while ago of some people get paralyzed by choice. Or oh yeah, something analysis like that. paralysis. Yeah, That's a very yeah, real yeah. thing. Yeah, but when I see you know twenty different varieties of canned soup, and I have guinea pigged myself in tomato soup studies. That's a story for later or another day or whatever, but um, I am relieved by that. And I do take a really long time in a grocery store, but like part of the reason is just like, what do I want to buy? And part of it is just like basking in, basking in the glory of like 20 varieties of soup. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we're clearly we're going to talk about tomato soup now. Oh, yeah. Um, so what does a molecular biologist do when she's sampling 58 soups or whatever this is with tomatoes? Mm. I think we've kind of spoken about mm-hmm. this offline, but like if I recall correctly, you're you're more of the 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 sort of acidic, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. non big fat creamy type. Yeah, I do. So, I have I not only enjoy doing science, but like weird thing about me, I also enjoy being a guinea pig. Hmm. And when I was an undergraduate student, you could sign up for all kinds of studies, and at the end, you get like some beer money or whatever. Or now they do Amazon gift cards, but they used to just give you cash. <laughs> you know, like sit in a room and answer a questionnaire and. Uh, So psychological studies, business school studies, and food science schools, uh, food science-related studies. And um, so at UC Davis in particular, I would do do these every once in a while. One of them was a tomato soup study where you don't necessarily know the purpose, like the main research question, but I would just go in at lunchtime and I would sit in a dark room and someone would raise like a, a little door and slide some tomato soup in front of me, and then I would taste each one and then rank on a sliding scale, like how creamy it is, how acidic or salty, how um, do I taste other things? So going going through like how, mm, what are some other things? Is it spicy? Is it creamy? Is it, you know, sweet? Is it sour? You know, all that kind yeah. of thing. Um, and those are just fun for me because, yeah, I really do enjoy food and smells and just it's a fun thing with wine when it's done so these are really fun and if you're interested in these kinds of things just find like a university near you that has a food science department i'm sure they do something like this um i would get together with a group so the researchers would host a group and everyone would come in around lunchtime and they'd have us taste some wine smell and taste some wine and they'd ask please you know tell us what you smell and then we'd write it all down and then the next time we met the researcher would put that thing in a glass and then we would 
everyone in the research group would smell the glass and say, is the, when you said it smelled like dirt, is this what you smelled? So we develop a common vocabulary for doing the study. Yeah. There are some some smells that are very similar. Um, I think like maraschino cherry smell and almond paste smell are actually the same. I think I've I think I've experienced that. I think mm-hmm. I agree with you on that mm-hmm. one. Yeah. So when you're in a sensory panel, people's like, oh, I smell maraschino cherry. I smell you know whatever. They'll put the maraschino cherry in the glass, and what, everyone will smell it. And be like, okay, when you smell this, we're going to call it. This. Right, you, mm-hmm. wine vocabulary is very specific. You have mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. you have to really, really get into it because a lot of people smell. And they're like, "Well, I smell wine." It's like you, you've got to get underneath that. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. there, are, a lot of them have some really, really interesting notes. Okay, and w- one of the reasons for doing these kinds of things. So I do it for fun. I love being a little guinea pig. But um, another study was about. So you know, California has fires. Vineyards are affected by these fires. Big time. Question. What is the effect of the fires on final wine composition and quality? And what then is the effect on the price a consumer is willing to pay for those wines that were made in years where there were these massive fires? Mm. So this is kind of like how you get from like smelling and tasting things to the real The macroeconomic world. sort of climate type yes. of deal. Okay, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Um, that's good stuff. It's fun. So when you're doing molecular biology, mm-hmm. there is there is a rumor that you can take these what what do you call it fa, 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 glowing stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, what, what's mm-hmm. what's the word for glowing? It's fos- fluorescent, fluorescent, or bioluminescent. Bio, there is there it is. Bio, so there's mm-hmm. a rumor that you can take this bioluminescent stuff and make things glow. Uh huh. Yes, you can. You make my hand glow. Yes, that is doable. Although it, it would, I don't think it would be permanent. So you would be doing what's called a transient transformation, and it would probably, I mean, almost certainly last under a month, maybe a few days. I'm not, I, I haven't actually tried it. I know in fruit, I know in like strawberry, a transient transformation doesn't last that long, like maybe a few days or something like that. Um, I don't know how long it would last in a human, but probably not long. Here's the thing. When you say not long, I was thinking seconds. When you're telling me a couple of days, couple I'm days. like, that's awesome. That would be my guess. Although, yeah, you can fact check me. Is it, is it a few days or a few or like a week? I don't think it would be that long. And that's because your cells have ways of saying that doesn't belong here and destroying it. So in other words, you could make a human glow or at least parts yeah. of a human. Yes. I feel like there's a definite <laughs> business here. Like there's no way that people wouldn't actually want to be like, oh, awesome. Who wouldn't mm-hmm. want to show up to like a cool party, like a rave mm-hmm, or whatever, mm-hmm. and your whole freaking face is literally like lit. Um, and everybody's just staring at you like, holy mm-hmm, crap, mm-hmm. what did he do? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, there are very serious reasons for using uh, green fluorescent protein or bioluminescent proteins in research, mm-hmm. for example. Um when you at- if you attach, for example, green fluorescent protein to some gene or the, the gene for GF- GFP, green fluorescent protein, if you, you, if you attach that to a gene of interest, then when the gene is expressed and it has this GFP attached to it, you can see where it goes in the cell. Like you can see does under a microscope, you can see like, does this, is this protein associated with a, with a cell wall or a cell membrane or a nucleus or like what's, what's going on? Is there a lot of it? Um, if you if you're doing an experiment where you want to control the expression of a gene, or you want to understand what how is this gene regulated, 
you you try and turn it on and off and you can measure is GFP going up or down. So you can use it as a kind of reporter to see, to, to better understand um, gene expression and regulation. But you could also make your hand glow and um, that would be fun. That would be really fun. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, I'm just, I'm going to say, there's no way there's not a startup here. Yeah, or like. Where you can basically send things that people make certain parts glow or whatever. <laughs> and then, yeah, I'm just, I'm going to stop it right there. But like various parts glow that they would want it to glow. I'll just say hand. Yeah, but like. But like, <laughs> but like, that would be amazing. Like all of a sudden you're, you're dancing and you're waving and everything like that. And your hand is glowing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who needs like uh, glow sticks? No, forget glow sticks. You got five of them attached to your hand. That'd be unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I wonder. I wonder. Or actually, okay. Mm, Let me think. So there are different, I think there are different bioluminescent proteins. And off the, to be fair, I don't know or remember which ones you have to actually, which ones you can turn off a light and actually see glowing Mm -hmm. versus you need to visualize the glowing protein Mm -hmm. under a certain wavelength of light. You know, like uh, when you go, I don't know if you ever do, what's it called? Uh, UV? Bowling. When you go bowling and they have like the, if you wear white, you glow. Um, I don't know. It's UV. I don't remember off the top of my head, like which kinds. Yeah. Yeah. That's really fun. I was yeah. I, I, I was expecting UV. You mean you can make something glow in like regular light? That'd be I don't crazy. Re- I don't I don't recall, Senator. Um, but I think <laughs> but fireflies light up. Um, there's fish that light up. You know, you don't need special That's um, right. uh, equipment to visualize that. So so how does the body expel that stuff? Like it's you, I mean, let's say you made my hand glow and then mm. three days later it doesn't. Is, is it like sloughing off the skin? Is it like, um, just like, so I don't there's, know. I think there's a few layers of like, that doesn't belong here. Get it out. Mm. One of the ways, although this, I don't know if this is, well, yeah, one of the ways. So you're putting, if you were to attempt this, you're inserting foreign DNA into your cells. And there's a variety of ways to get it in. Um, you can use uh, liposomes. You can, I'm, and I'm not talking about like your hand, just in general, how, you, how do you transfect cells? Like in a tube, you can use chemically competent cells. You can electrocute them. Um, and then also you can um, use liposomes, which kind of go, and they, they interact with your cell membrane and then, yeah, I don't that know. one sounded better that than sound, all the rest the of sound them. The sound really that, summarizes it. That, that one sounds way better than the rest of them. <laughs> okay. And, um, but once it's there, you have um, double-stranded DNA present. So you have um, what's you, – your cells have what's called RNAi machinery that recognizes double-stranded DNA and wants to chop it up. And this is also, at least in – and there's some differences between plants and animals. Um, but at least in plants, um, RNAi machinery recognizes double-stranded uh, nucleic acid or DNA or RNA. No, yeah, DNA. And then chops it up. And this is a really way, great way to defend against like viruses, for instance. Okay. Then the, the other question of like, and I hear people talk about this um, – 
and other, well, how do I want to go about answering this? There's, there are vesicles within your cells that are the garbage disposals of the cell that take, yeah, basically accumulate garbage and then destroy it. Okay. Um, So that there's that as well, but I'm not, I, off the top of my head, I don't really remember the mechanics. Um, But yeah, there is a kind of garbage, there are little garbage collectors in your cells and there are um, mechanisms within the cell um, to recognize stuff that does not belong. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The genomic diversification of grapevine clones. Oh yeah, this is the Zinfandel thing. So that's a paper you put out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, what does that what does that mean? Because when we mm-hmm. I, and again, I, I'm I'm not trying to sidetrack. I actually want to no, go back okay. to it, and specifically yeah, yeah. because there's no sex going on. Therefore, the plants mm-hmm. are cloning themselves or we're cloning or we're cloning them or is that what we're doing so if you grapevines when you plant a vineyard you're not planting seeds you're taking you're basically planting cuttings it means there's no sex going on so and there's an asterisk they should be genetically identical but grapevines have been cultivated for hundreds and hundreds of, so zinfandel has been cultivated for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and mutations occur and these can spread and basically that's how you get different clones that are the only way in which they differ is somatic variation or um, yeah mutations that occurred in like one cell that proliferated proliferated through a cell layer and then someone walked by that vine like a vineyard manager and was like oh that's cool and lopped it off and if it was good planted it and now you you can propagate this unique Clone. Hence Pinos. Pinos, right. You had a, you had a, mm-hmm. I don't know which, I don't know what was the progenitor of all this, but. Yeah. I don't remember the order, but there is a paper on, on One that way or the other, thing. someone literally mm-hmm. looked at either a red or white, white vine and there was the opposite color. Yep. And went, whoa, mm-hmm. I should plant that. So that's really what's going, or, or yes. for that matter, a gray one or whatever it is. Right. So we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Okay. Does this have like. What's the prevalence? Like you're walking up and down, you know, oh, a vineyard, a and there's there's a there's a bunch of pinot, and it's like, oh look, there's you know there's a bunch of pinot gris all planted everywhere, mm-hmm. and then you're like, look, pinot noir. There's yeah, literally it, a vine of it. Is that? I mean, could you just do that? You walk a couple hundred meters, and it's just there. Yes. So no vineyard way. managers will find bu- what are called bud sports that have this reversion to either colorless or colored grapes, um, but. This whole thing of like uh, somatic mutation and clonally propagated populations is like not just cool for grapes. There's this concept called Muller's ratchet. This is like a basic biological principle that in the absence of sex, um, uh, asexually propagating organisms or like clonal populations will accumulate putatively deleterious mutations. Um, and if it's a diploid organism, they'll be heterozygous. Um, so you basically are like loading up, you can load up on mutations over time. So, um, grapevine is a really useful model to study Muller's ratchet specifically because you have clonally propagated grapevines for literally hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm. So like 
part of that paper was trying to understand just like on the basic biological level, what happens to genomes over what happens to clonally to genomes of clonally propagated organisms over that kind of time span. And so we looked, you know, how much mutation is happening in in a gene mm-hmm. and then within the gene in the exon or the intron. So the, the exon being the functional part, the intron being the part that's spliced out during transcription. Or how much is happening in the intergenic space. So the area in the genome, which is most of the genome, that is not genes. And the the finding was that after accounting for differences in the amount of those elements, so like I said, like there's very small amount of genes, gene length, and there's a lot of intergen. So after accounting for that difference in amount, mm-hmm. we still saw a lot more somatic mutation happening in intergenic space. And that got back gets back to our melanoma discussion and methylation discussion because um, so methylation is a great tool that the cells use to keep transposons from jumping around. Uh, transposons were initially discovered in um, in corn by Barbara, Barbara McClintock, who was a scientist at Cornell, and she won a Nobel Prize for it in medicine, I think. Shout out to Babs. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, okay, as a consequence, so you have this intergenic space that has transposable elements in it, and it's very highly methylated. The tra- there's a, It's kind of a double-edged sword, so there's a trade-off. So methylated cytosines, so you have A's, T's, C's, and G's, the C's are more prone to spontaneous, what's called spontaneously deaminate. So like without impetus, just they'll spontaneously deaminate to uracil, I think? A U, which then, yeah. So you're you're going to see as a consequence of trans transposable element methylation, your higher rates of somatic mutation in intergenic space. And this is the cost that the cell pays for um, methylating transposons. Which is fair. I'm confused, though. You said a C trans some things to a U? To a U, yeah. There's a U in in, in 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 RNA. Genes? In RNA. Oh, in RNA. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thought you were just adding letters. I was like, cool. Yeah, I think. Nope. Yeah, so there's the U, and usually so you only see it in Given RNA. that we're doing a bunch of different cloning, et cetera, Let's just say you had a time machine. You go forward two hundred years. Is wine still wine? Um. Well, places like Cornell, I know, have released a variety of new cultivars. Um, is wine still wine? You know. Okay. Let's. The most optimistic take is like the old world will still be doing what the old world does. And the new world is like the wild freaking West and is always kind of experimenting and rolling dice. And you can find really amazing things. You can find really weird things. And that kind of spirit of innovation in in wine, I think, will continue to happen. And there will be new and cool things in the years to come. Okay. The other piece, though, is like um, things like cold, for instance, things like pest pressure cause a lot of crop loss and to circumvent this, people breed novel varieties of grapevines. And these might not be genetically modified. They might just be um, cultivars that are bred using traditional breeding techniques to make grapes that ideally taste like the cultivars that we love, but are also cold resistant or drought resistant or whatever. Yeah. And (laughs) I know the face. Isn't that just genetic modification? Well, using different methods or for yeah. that matter, slower yeah, methods. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Um, but there's a variety of ways. There's there's more than way to. Yeah, I'm sorry. There's more than one way to skin a cat, as they say. Fair. Um, and there That's are a brutal saying. It is awful. <laughs> so actually, I I say that. I it's such a handy, that wasn't a dig at you. I'm just saying it's such a, a brutal handy saying. And I actually, my former boss was Italian, and I said that to him on my first day of work, and he was like, "I didn't. I don't know that." Saying. Why like, are you skinning that's cats? A, that's a terrible saying. I was like, yeah, there's no wrong way to eat. It, there's no wrong way to eat an Oreo or a Reese's. That doesn't work. But there's no, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Like, is there a better one? Is there a, something in a, similar, analogous? No. Not that I can. I mean, not that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, So it stays. But it's just a brutal. It is. It is. Yeah. Like, who's the first guy to teach the various ways to skin cats? I honestly think one of the most irritating (laughs) ones that I hear is you. You made your bed now sleep in it. I don't. Again, unless you're talking to a carpenter who actually made the bed, Mm -hmm. most people would be like, "Wait." I did the work to make my bed, and now I get to sleep in it. This is the opposite of consequences. It yeah, should yeah. be, you slept in your bed, now make mm, it. Bed. Uh, right. Yeah. I just never said that. Unless people, like, I, maybe I'm I'm taking it wrong. People are like, no, it's from the, the, the point of view of a furniture maker, a carpenter. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. That makes more sense. <laughs> like, if you made a crappy bed, but anyway. I'm sure there are, like, I'm sure there are linguists who really know, like, the history of all of these really bizarre sayings. We still say card before the horse. That one's got to be pretty old. Yeah, but that one makes sense. Like, you you know, the horse pulls the cart. Yeah, you but can't put I don't the cart know anybody, before the horse. I don't know anybody who was like, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll just stick the cart in front of the horse. Mm-hmm. What? My grandmother, <laughs> so I, uh, my grandmother, uh, is and it was an Italian immigrant, and she had a lot of really cool, like, rhyming sayings. And one of them roughly translates to like, "Don't count your chickens," but it's um, the water is boiling, but the pig is still in the mountain. <laughs> uh, I like it. I bet it sounds amazing in Italian, but I'm completely lost. <laughs> okay. Good enough, though. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, so uh, we're, let's just say for sake, because we already took a time machine to go see if wine was wine, so we're still in the future, let's just mm-hmm, say. We're 200 mm-hmm, years mm-hmm. in the future. What does molecular biology look like now? Are we not molecular? Are we literally doing, like, cell engineering? Well, the molecular stuff is smaller than the scale of the, the cell. So, really? like, the cell, the cell contains, the nucleus contains the genetic material, so... Molecular is still a smaller scale. Um, I, hmm. What are we doing? Yeah, what's going on 200 years in the future inside of molecular biology? Are you literally, like, engineering things from, like, the quark level? Or, like, are you all basically physicists now? Because there's... Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, there's a great webcomic where you... There's a lot of webcomics of... Physic- mathematicians, physicists, chemists, biologists, psychologists, da da da, mm-hmm. da. Um, No, I think there's there's a lot of you'll always need biologists, you always need chemists, you always need the people in the different disciplines. Um, I think the purpose of all of those disciplines is a 
not at least my my point of view is not generating new knowledge just for the sake of new knowledge but it the purpose is always the motor the motor is always the improvement of human life and giving people more choice and options and things like that and so i there are a lot of cool molecular biological tools that are being used today i would like those to be used towards that end Mm -hmm. and be readily available to that to people so again we're 200 years in the future Mm -hmm. i imagine we have a pretty amazing understanding of what it is to be a human being better than we do now i mean right now we're just like okay we're big giant meat sacks filled with water there's uh some chemicals going back and forth there's some very weak electricity going back and forth to various places and that's, I mean, really, we don't have too much better of an understanding than that at present. Do you think that this field ends up getting to like, here's what life is? No. Like to an almost definitive answer? No. Here's, well, here's what life is. Do you mean in the absolute, like, the this is the recipe kind of deal or in like the more like philosophical Point of view. Well, it's not necessarily, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I, I mean, I, I guess you could say either one of them, but I wasn't really going for philosophical because it's not a mm-hmm. pr- particularly philosophical field. Mm-hmm. Um, not that you don't eventually get there, especially when someone asks goofy questions like this, no, but um, I mean, do we, do we end up like, do we end up creating the soup again? And you're like, hey, hey look, like this is what happened the first time that life was created. Like there's, there's mm-hmm. some amino acids, there's a lightning strike. Oh, like, we, Literally Dr. Frankenstein it up. Like, what does that look yeah, like? Yeah, so there is this famous experiment called the Miller-Urey experiment where that was basically uh, accomplished. And do you know the Simpsons episode? Have you seen, were you a Simpsons fan? Yeah. There's a, I think it's a Treehouse of Horrors where Lisa Simpson does oh. a science project and like she makes a life. She makes like a little tiny civilization in a Don't they eventually evolve and like start using like rocket ships? I think I remember Yeah, that yeah, one. they attack Bart and then <laughs> they miniaturize her. And they're like, that's they right. refer, you know, they consider her, you know, their their god and also um, defender against Bart. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You know, who knows? I think mm, life is. Mm, mm. There's always more to learn, you know, like the acquisition of knowledge is I see it as like, you know, you're like wiping away sand in the desert and like finding finding cool pieces of things. Um, there is an entire discipline called synthetic biology uh, where you you can, the goal is to take the genome of one organism, put it in another and transform that other thing into the first thing. So you could make a pig into a dog. Starting from the... <laughs> Yes. So I'm that's going like macro conceptually. Here. Yeah. So like <laughs> macro conceptually. Yeah. Um, can you, you can take the basic arc. Can you take the basic architecture of a cell? Yes. For instance, and put genetic material in that cell in a way that fundamentally transforms the end point for that organism. So that's cool. And then, um, I mean, and people have cloned sheep, you know, I mean, the word for that, or the phrase for that, I should say, would be what cellular alchemy. I mean, that's. <laughs> I mean, 
in physics, right? That's that's what I mean. I think Newton ended up going crazy from trying to turn lead into gold because mm-hmm. um, of lead poisoning. But I don't. Is that is that a fair comparison? Maybe a little bit. I mean, I guess in my brain, the I don't. Well, let me think. You can imagine wanting to make humans from scratch, like if you have trouble making humans the old-fashioned way. You said yes to the big giant tomato, so yeah, I don't yeah, mean so to cut not? you off, but like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. would you be okay with literally like, we started off with one individual cell and effectively created a human? Yeah, yeah, sounds go- cool. You'd be good with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the fear, like take away the fear from playing God yes. aspect. I do not have that fear. There is the concern of like, what if this is used for evil purposes kind of deal. And um, I mean, we I, are human. Usually when we discover something, we yeah, do something, we'll do something funky with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, questionable. <laughs> and to me, like if that's your problem, you know, there's always going to be new technology. And it's if your issue are like moral concerns, those concerns exist separate from whatever the new technology is and you're maybe should focus on that like the the philosophy the what is what are the ideas and philosophy and values of the cultural soup in which you're in and thinking about those because those exist yeah separate from the new thing of the day um yeah there's always that risk of could this be used for nefarious purposes but like it's not that there's something particularly weird about this particular technology. People said said this about all kinds of technologies as they came up. I mean, so, AI, AI mm-hmm. is the big one now. People sign this like big giant thing, like we, we have to control this. And I'm like, you're you're effectively, you were literally effectively saying, okay, advanced math is scary. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, but there's nothing, but, like there isn't consciousness. We're not even remotely close to that, if ever. Mm-hmm. And you're saying big math is could be used for bad stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, I mean, E equals MC squared was used for some pretty crazy things. Sure. I, so, but I think the preoccupation for those that are concerned with the, you know, values and virtues and philosophy, mm-hmm. and things, I think the focus needs to be on those things in the culture and not trying to play whack-a-mole with new technology. Um, and if you maybe if you can have confidence in the first thing, you'll have less fear about the second thing. Do you think this comes from a place where people are just afraid because there's too much to learn? I mean, we we had Renaissance people 500 years ago. Like, Da Vinci knew almost everything there was to know. Obviously not everything, but, like, the man really, really had, like, there wasn't a whole lot of fields where he wasn't, you know, knee-deep in at least, mm-hmm. right? An artist, mathematician, inventor. I mean, you know, mechanical engineering. He was incredible. True genius. True, yeah. True, true. You know, unadulterated genius. Um, but we haven't had that for a long time, and it's because there's. I mean, you could spend your entire life and you could never know everything about molecular biology, and that is such a specific field. It's like there's, there's no way. Computer Mm -hmm. science is another one. I mean, you could probably. Never know everything there is to know about tomatoes. Sure, sure. If we just go back to the big fat tomato, mm-hmm. you could probably spend your whole life and you could be like, I can come pretty close mm-hmm. to knowing everything about the tomato, but I really just don't know anything else about the world. Mm-hmm. Do you think a lot of this comes from sort of like people freaking out as in like we're moving too fast? 
Um, first, I don't think you need omnipotence to make measurable, obvious improvements in the quality of people's life and the ability to like self-determine in all the ways. You don't need omnipotence. Um, and proof of that is like, look at all of this. Like I'm not, there are a lot of diseases I'm not worried about dying from. Um, yeah. The most common thing uh, for surgery, I believe in the 60s was an ulcer and now mm -hmm. you take a pill. Like that mm -hmm. is, say what you will about the medical industry and like and pharma, but like yeah. they have really done some amazing things. Um, some questionable things from time to time, but like, again, in, in every field, you're always going to get some crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, I'll just like take a leaf out of Steven Pinker's book, which is, and this is similar, is, yeah, do we have personalized medicine? No, but we live, I'm very glad to live at the time that I'm living and that the civilization which we live was constructed given imperfect knowledge but it's real like we do know real thing we we are capable of knowing however piecemeal it may be uh reality and that's really important and yeah what's reality to you <laughs> what do you mean Re so hold on you don't get to just ask that question without more detail oh yeah <laughs> that's the that's the big giant one so what what is what does this look like for you it's for the same as your reality you we sure? live in a common reality. Are you sure? Yes. Why do you think that? Because we're bumping up against each other <laughs> in the soup of molecules? No. Okay. But it just is. I'm sorry. This is like a terrible answer. Um, how do I know? Why should you be confident that when you walk out your door in the morning that you, there isn't like some magical hole that plunges you into hell a reasonable question i don't know I'm, I'm pretty confident that that's not going to be the case though i'm very con i'm 100 certain that that is the case um and you can't live your life with the kind of ambiguity of reality not being real like you you so you there are things we take for granted and those it built into those things are well, we're taking things granted about reality such that we can live our lives and make decisions and things like that. That's true. But you said 100% confident. Yeah, I, yeah. I am not 100% confident that, that wouldn't happen one day, but only for I'm 99.9, <laughs> maybe repeating. Okay. Um, <laughs> but the reason I'm not 100% mm -hmm. is because uh, I have my patterns broken continuously, literally mm -hmm. because of conversations mm -hmm. like this. I have very strong pattern recognition that I'm an engineer. I look at things like X and Y and Z. Um, and a lot of my friends, uh, they're not engineers that like logic is not the first thing that they reach towards. That's not a diss, by the way. A lot of times logic is lo logic is, is, a, is a failure because the things that they're talking about are either on a spiritual level or they're on a uh, emotional level or something of this nature. And it's like logic fails at those levels. It's, it's the wrong tool um, for, for the wrong job. Um, and yet that's the one that like, that's, <coughs> that's what I would say is my strongest tool. <coughs> And that said, you're okay. And that said, um, that's why I bring this up of, of like, that's why I'm not a hundred percent sure. So, you know, as a molecular biologist, you're literally looking at like origin of life type of stuff. Mm -hmm, like you're mm -hmm. all the way down there way further than I've ever been. Mm -hmm. Um, in order to do anything in order for, in, in order to do anything, reality must be objective. Not subjective. It must be, and our realities must be identical. That's. I think it's just like a. 
requirement of logic in a, in a way. True. Like, and maybe that is in, in order to walk out your door in the morning, there are m certain things must be true. Gravity. There's just a, yeah, a <laughs> given. Right. But my, my thing is, and again, this is, this is kind of where I go with this is I agree in order for us to live. And by the way, forget in order for us to live. What about just, you know, it is objectively true that it, that is true, but the human experience makes it subjective. Does that make sense? Like something mm -hmm. may be objectively true for one person um, and actually for all people. And yet their experiences tell them that it's subjective from time to time. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess. But the, it's still not like your your subjective experience is not creating reality. You, you, some people would you argue have, with that. You have a. I wouldn't, <laughs> but some people would. You, your mind does not create reality; it perceives it. And yeah, you have different life experiences than me. We're different in a, a lot of in many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're still. You probably like different movies than me. Um, I'm sure we could find at least one movie that I don't like that you do, and one that mm -hmm. yeah, and vice versa. I'm sure of it. But that still. You still can't assert that given I have a different life experience that actually air is made of bubblegum. Like, there, you know. I agree mm -hmm. thoroughly. What I'm saying to you is this is coming from a computer scientist and a molecular mm -hmm. biologist scientist. Our views are, again, I, I mean, and again, like, the, this is just because I've had so many of these conversations. Our views, in my opinion, are correct, but that's just an opinion. I can't objectively say that they're true for everybody. Opinions are like something else that everyone has. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> um, that's for absolute sure. That everyone has, objectively and they, speaking. And, and they all stink. <laughs> it's completely true. Um, if you were given a magic wand. All right. And the magic wand can perform one magic spell, and the magic spell is you are allowed to create anything related to your field. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What would you create? What would that look like? All right. I've already said that omnipotence is not required to act. Human action doesn't require, you know, absolute knowledge. But, you know, one thing that frustrates me as a doing genomics is that let's say you get, you do some study. What's the effect of this thing on development? What's the effect of disease on this process or whatever? And you've, you you get some, you get a list of things with a statistic attached. Um, it is, how do you contextualize that result in a way that's, the current way you contextualize those results is very inefficient. So like I can start, okay, this, uh, this gene is interesting given my result. And I look through the literature. But eventually, like, you have to finish. You can't just do that forever. You have to publish or, like, create a product or whatever. Um, it's inefficient to read and synthesize the entire digitized body of, like, the entire, di the entire digital record of, like, man's pursuit of knowledge. It's, like, just not possible to read through all of it. And then on top of that synthesize a story like about 
your result, like in a comprehensive way. Does that make sense? I think what you're saying is, given that everything alive has DNA and you just did your test on X, let's say it's a grape. Mm. How is that applicable to humans? How is it applicable to tigers? How is it applicable to anything else that's alive? And there's really no great way of, of sort of cross, you know, cr- crossing those bounds and making your, your results. I'm more getting at like the idea of like knowledge loss and the failure to maybe see the big picture or like interesting, non-obvious things in your results because it's just technically impossible to read it all, process it all, and synthesize and integrate all of it. Mm. So if you could, you know, we have, like I use Google Scholar, I like read papers, like if I could actually have like kind of an automated extension of myself to take my results and then collect, contextualize them within man's entire digitized body of knowledge, that would be, that would be a really big deal we tend to, in our results, you know, you have the thousand interesting things. It's really easy to readily recognize the things that you already know about and yeah. recognize. So you're like, oh yeah, I study this and I see that this biosynthetic pathway is affected and I can write about that and publish the paper and done. And then you publish the data set and maybe it's never used again. And now you've wasted a lot of money to generate a data set. Um, you haven't gotten the most out of the data. Um, you have probably missed a really interesting narrative or like, story in the day. So I would really love to have that, the kind of insight, greater insight into genomics data. That is, that would be massive. I think that would be a transformative thing, actually, to actually make use of, yeah, the entire, the entire digitized body of knowledge is how I'll put it. Um, Right now, we, on any given day, we can only make use of a subset. So we're just, we're looking at this tree and we're missing the forest. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Seems like something you guys are actually actively working towards to generate, though. <laughs> so you're kind of you're kind of you're kind of creating the thing that you really want to exist in the first place, which yes. is amazing. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Um, Amanda, this has been awesome. I learned a lot. Oh, thank you. And I'm gonna have to Google a lot. It was nice to hang, e- even though some of those words I probably can't spell. Um, but still, so awesome. So, um, speaking of that. Uh, do you want to talk about I don't know socials or or maybe generates website like what what's what's something you want want people to visit um, um, so that they can kind of catch I up? I am with not you. a very social person. That's fair. Uh, but you can go check out the generate website G E N as in Nancy R A I T as in Tom dot com, and then the founders are really cool and I know they're out there. So mm. Razib Khan, Taylor Capito, and Shantanu Das. Awesome. Check them out. Um, that's great stuff. This has been amazing. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for coming on. You are very welcome. And we're definitely going to go get some burgers after this. Yes, excellent. <laughs> excellent. All right. Thanks. Um, for those listening, uh, and on behalf of Amanda and myself, we have been standing on the shoulders of giants. Thank you. 